0: Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, the U.S. Supreme Court will review a UNC case as they examine the constitutionality of affirmative action for college admissions and a look at how mistrust and misinformation could impact voters, poll workers, and election officials this midterm. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. For centuries, institutions of higher education in America did not admit black students. While the country's oldest university, Harvard University, was founded in 1636, it wasn't until 1799, 163 years later, that the first black student graduated from an American university. And it was John Chavis, a North Carolina native, who held that distinction with a degree from an academy that eventually became Washington and Lee University. Fast forward to the 1960s and enter affirmative action, a practice used by some college admissions boards to proactively diversify their campuses and a practice that has been under attack ever since. This fall, two major cases will be heard separately by the U.S. Supreme Court who will decide whether or not race-based affirmative action in college admissions is constitutional. One of those cases involves the University of North Carolina The plaintiff is a nonprofit called Students for Fair Admissions, and they are appealing a lower court's ruling that found UNC's Affirmative Action Program to be legal. What lens will this current court use in their decision making, and how could the outcome affect black students seeking college admission? I'd like to welcome to the program April Dawson, a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, political analyst Steve Rao, and Professor Lamisha Whittington with Advance Carolina. A lot of background for that, but I wanted our audience to know, and Professor Dawson, can you share or explain what are some of the main questions that this Supreme Court should be answering this fall as they examine the constitutionality of affirmative action?
1: Yes, I'm happy to, and thank you for having me. So the first question that the court is going to need to decide is what is the weight of the precedent and how the court is going to weigh that. And so when we think about affirmative action, race-based affirmative action, the court has addressed this issue before. Uh, So the first case was the Bakke case in 1978, and even though the court struck down the use of quotas the court did say that the consideration of race in a holistic review of an application was permissible. And the court most recently upheld the consideration of race in a holistic review in the Fisher case, which was decided in 2016. So it's curious in some ways that the court is addressing this issue again. Um, Now, we know that this particular Supreme Court does not give a lot of weight to precedent. So it doesn't bode well for those of us that are supportive of affirmative action that the court has accepted review of these two cases. Another question that the court is going to have to address is whether diversity is a compelling interest. So in determining whether affirmative action programs violate the Equal Protection Clause, and this is the challenge that's being brought by the plaintiffs, The court employs strict scrutiny, and that means that the court will ask whether the consideration of race is necessary to compel and necessary to promote a compelling interest. And the interest in this case would be diversity. And so the court will have to decide in the first instance whether diversity is a compelling interest such that race can be used in reaching diversity now, it's, we don't know if the court will reach a conclusion that diversity is a compelling interest, but if the court does, then the next question that the court will have to address is whether the use of race in these situations is narrowly tailored. So in looking at race and looking at this holistic review, are the, the schools over relying upon race? Um, are there other ways in which the, the admissions Offices can diversify the student body without taking race into account. So those are some of the, the big questions that the court will answer and based on their answers to those questions, we'll know what the outcome is.
0: That is some very helpful uh, exposition. Thank you so much for um, explaining it and breaking it down in that way. Steve, you know, what can you share about the effectiveness of affirmative action in college admissions for North Carolina schools? Has it been working? Has, who has it benefited most?
2: Well, I think I want to thank the professor for that uh, really, really great summary. And I, and I think that, um, in, in my opinion, <clears throat> as an analyst, I think that, um you know, in the universities that we have in North Carolina, I think there's been a number of seven or eight that use affirmative action. I do believe that it's worked quite well. It's worked well uh, to help uh, recruit minorities into our universities, uh, to train admissions officers on the importance of diversity. And you know, I want to go to this issue of a compelling interest because I think we often forget that diversity, not only diversity of race and gender, but also socioeconomic diversity, has, be, has been, a, been proven to be a key driver of success in universities, in schools, in terms of academic performance, and even our top leading companies in the world, or even startup companies that have grown to become multi-billion dollar empires. Uh, they've all valued diversity. So I think it's really important for us to look at the fact that, you know, if we rolled back affirmative action, we would actually be taking a significant step back on many of the DEI uh, efforts we're seeing today. I'm seeing universities hire DEI officers, journalists, publications like the Daily Tar Heel, UNC's paper, they're hiring a DEI officer, uh, companies. And so if we we get away from affirmative action, uh, we're going to be rolling back the very things that we're focusing on and you know in terms of having and promoting diversity if we get we can tweak affirmative action you know at the end of the day my final two things i'll say is that i believe this is a perfect example of the court abandoning what's worked well in america which is stare decisis upholding precedent to expand rights We've started with Roe v. Wade a few weeks ago, and now you know, affirmative action, uh, you know, are we gonna go back and look at every decision? I think that I'm gonna close out with a presentation I attended at the North Carolina League of Municipalities Race and Equity Task Force, where they talked about equality versus equity. And there was a slide under equality, and it showed two people watching a baseball game, but one view was higher than the other. But when equity was defined, it was like taking into account the circumstances of those individuals and that it, they were watching it, the game, from the same level. Yes, I've seen same, that
0: image. And, I've and, seen that image, too. And, and yes. the
2: point I'm trying to make mm-hmm. is that I think that affirmative action and the cases before the court have not violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment because it's also taken into effect the circumstances of minorities. And if you look the data shows that today, college-educated America, 11% black Americans and 15% Latino American in our universities. At Harvard and our top universities, we have 5% black Americans and about 11% Latino Americans. So it's not true that if we just level the playing field and let everyone go in on uh, their admissions criteria, that we're going to move that number up at all. So So
0: much has been said. Thank you so much for (laughs) that, Steve. Um, Thank you for all of that because um, we've talked about precedent setting. We've talked about the uh, compelling need and value of diversity, and it's been a lot, but necessary and LA, I wanna get your thoughts on all of this, um, specifically about the value of precedent in our Supreme Court.
3: Sure. So when we talk about, first, when you uh, you know bring up the important element that we have to consider is the programs that will be cut, the impact that will actually happen. We know that affirmative action programs are responsible for about a reported up to 33% increase in the number of minority applications to higher education institutes. So when we talk about the fact that affirmative action, of course, is being considered when we talk about the federal level, the Supreme Court, these same actions that we've seen being gutted, whether it's Voting Rights Act, whether we're talking about Roe v. Wade, these same intentionality of con- claiming that we're in a post-racial society. Um, Of course, we understand the impact of that, but on a hyper-state local, other states have actually already conducted affirmative action bans, and we already see the negative and adverse impact in those states, such as in California. The Proposition 209 that was actually on the ballot and voters voted for uh, to ban affirmative action back in, I believe, 1996. And so what we saw is this incredible harm and impact to, of course, the numbers of uh, registration, application, and Enrollment for Black students, Native Americans, and highest was the Latino or Latinx community. And so what we also saw was that actually white students didn't really increase nominally above their high school graduation rates. It was actually Asian Americans that have been able to increase in enrollment in California. So the impact that we're seeing is on various populations, but I don't think it was taken into account by the voters exactly what that looked like from 1996 to now. But what we saw is this catalyst was a movement that was led by a U.S. regent board. Who was actually a black uh, Connerly? Who was a black American, and he is back con- talking about again is going to be on the ballot. Let's go against affirmative action, even though he's seeing the adverse impact. And so what we're talking about on the federal level is this this uh, decision point, affirmative action was designed as a response. It's an actual policy, right? It's not a belief system. It's not a, okay, let's give someone a handout. It is an actual requirement by the federal government that if you receive federal dollars, you have to incorporate a plan. And in that affirmative action plan are actually guidelines to say how you are going to defeat discrimination and racism, namely, because affirmative action was designed as a response to proven discrimination and racism. It isn't a, again, a figment of our imagination. It was in a response. And it goes all the way back to the Reconstruction era. Actually, we can back it up. It actually goes back to the 13th Amendment that, of course, that was created upon emancipation. But because of that 13th Amendment clause that said that we were actually not free people of color if we were a force in prison, charged with a crime, guess what happened after that 13th Amendment when we were emancipated? Southern states created black codes laws that, of course, put us back in the prison state. They got through that loophole to say, well, sure, we will still do slavery legally. We'll make sure to imprison folks. And because of that, Congress responded with the 14th Amendment and put in that clause to say, hold on, let's begin to look at the fact that we emancipated slavery. We're not going to use this loophole to this degree. And we need to actually create this affirmative action, even though it wasn't so named at that point. So we've seen a back and forth of a policy of one side is fighting to emancipate and we're fighting for our own emancipation and the other side just won't give up. That's where we are.
0: It's a big loop, it's all connected, and people have to stay tuned. Um, Professor April Dawson, I would have loved to get another comment in here from, from you, but we do have to close out this segment. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: We know that in a few months, North Carolinians will head to the polls for midterm elections. Poll workers and election officials will also roll up their sleeves. But according to a survey by the Brennan Center for Justice, one in five are likely to quit before the 2024 presidential election. Why? Some report that they're concerned about threats and harassment in doing their work. And in fact, some conservative groups are implementing strategies such as poll observation that cross the line into intimidation. Joining our panel to talk about it, I'd like to welcome Lynn Bonner, an investigative reporter with NC Policy Watch. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Lynn, what can you share about this increased concern by poll workers and election officials in any relation to what's actually happening?
4: Well, there was some concern during the primaries about um, poll observers, um, partisan poll observers, and mostly identified as Republicans who were doing some things that poll observers aren't allowed to do. Some were trying to look at, you know, laptops where there's confidential voting information, engaging poll workers and voters um, when they're really supposed to only talk to the chief judge. Um, some uh, elections um, poll workers were uh, tailed as they left um, the polling site to go back to headquarters. Um, some some observers tried to follow voters as they walked up to the voting booth to actually vote. None of these things are allowed. Um, and some of the um, uh, poll workers felt that, uh, felt intimidated. There was one, um, local elections director who said that, uh, a chief judge, uh, felt intimidated and didn't want to work early voting anymore. Um, another reported that, um, poll, uh, workers in that county felt intimidated. So there is a, an increase, uh, in, uh, poll observers being trained in some aggressive tactics, um, to not, to watch not only poll workers, but voters.
0: So this is very real. What you just shared with us are real incidents, and it's happening. And it sounds like it's a known strategy that they know and are implementing, the people who are implementing these strategies know, is working. Um, Steve, let me bring you in on this. What are your thoughts about the fact that this is happening and how it might be related to everything that we've witnessed this past year? SINCE JANUARY 6TH.
2: WELL, I THINK IT JUST SHOWS YOU uh, THAT THERE'S JUST AN ABSOLUTE DISRUPTION IN DEMOCRACY IN AMERICA, JUST IN TERMS OF, YOU KNOW, WE'VE HAD ALREADY um, OVER THE LAST YEAR AND A HALF uh, LACK OF FAITH IN OUR INSTITUTIONS, FROM THE CONGRESS TO THE SENATE TO THE COURTS, um, AND NOW um, THE ONE PLACE WHERE DEMOCRACY SHOULD BE SAFE, CASTING OUR VOTE, IS at JEOPARDY. And I think that it just, you know, really my concern is that, uh, number one, we're not honoring the outcomes of elections, right? So what happens is these partisan election observers, even Michael Waitley from the Republican Party said no election in North Carolina is going to be uh, conducted without a Republican election observer. So that kind of intimidation where you're looking for fraud, even if there's no evidence of fraud, you don't get the outcome you want, you file a petition in the court. Okay, so number one, it's going to be affecting the outcomes of the elections, right? And that's not that's not right. Two, election workers. This is very stressful because you know people are coming in. These are workers that are coming in to just help the democracy. And now all of a sudden, you have these contentious situations like what happened in Wayne County, um, you know, red counties, blue counties, and so it just makes this one area our democracy, uh, where you know we want to make sure that we are respectful of people's right to choose. Uh, who they vote for, and the final thing I'll say Do is: Do we really
0: th- want to be respectful of that right? Well, I mean, what I what I'm seeing yeah. happen, you know, is is uh, this this erosion. So yeah. just just to your point about right. not believing what actually happened here. We've got a process. We've got a democratic process. Right. It's implemented. The votes are counted, but someone's decided they don't like the results.
2: But, but but it's a political strategy. That's exactly the point. You know, I mean, we've seen this time and time again from the insurrection we've seen the court, you know, basically uh, states changing the powers of the secretary of state in Georgia or in Arizona, moving it to the attorney general to affect the outcomes of elections. So we
0: don't like the rules. So we We don't don't like what happened. Let's change the rules. Let's
2: change rules. Let's change voting rights. Let's make it harder to count early votes. Let's not count absentee ballot. And this is just adding to their playbook. (laughs) You know, and so it's about winning. And and that's unfortunately, democracy shouldn't be about winning. It should be about a governing, you know, campaign is over, vote and let honor the results. And there's always another election. So yeah. I think that's my my take on the situation. Thanks, Steve.
0: L.A., you know, here's democracy sort of on the line and we're going to see the outcome in the upcoming elections, The the impact. And if someone's standing over my shoulder, I am actually more apt to possibly make a mistake.
3: That's right. That's right. To follow the great dialogue here, we've heard about, you know, just what is actually happening on the ground, the culture that is being embedded by a specific group of folks. And so when we take it back, this has been a concerted effort, a really uh, clear strategic plan that has been underway for years. In response to the election of former President Obama, the membership of the KKK increased dramatically, a sign of a racist hate that wasn't extinguished, right? No matter what the Supreme Court says, I mean, we're a post-racial society. Well, that hate and that, that angst was then galvanized under, of course, the Trump administration by former President Trump. And of course, that spread like wildfire, that ideology of the alt-right. And in the alt-right issue statement, a campaign platform that they like to use is taking over the government. And as Steve was mentioning, that is around targeting our elections. And we saw that when we said the challenging at the highest, uh, uh, our highest office of the land, making sure that election integrity, we saw this argument and kind of this dog whistling language. And so what we're now seeing is this embedded culture that's been ingrained for several years. And the reality is in North Carolina, several rural areas all right groups have actually been using specific areas for trainings to understand how to interrupt elections and training each other based on, again, this ideology. It's a trained, strategic, organized effort. And so what we're looking at is resources from the state budget. We finally had a state budget approved, right? But were there resources allocated to support poll worker protection? No, this is, again, a new frontier by saying now we have to not only protect voters, we now have to protect poll workers. And then we have to distinguish between the poll workers who Actually protesting as a strategic plan in coalition with the same alt-right group. Who are the poll workers who are being intimidated versus the poll workers who are fabricating intimidation so they can increase the voter fraud election integrity uh, uh stigma. And so that's what we're also look- looking at on the ground. And what's happening is it's become up to groups and individuals. Uh, my organization we actually had to create a Black Legal Network and an election protection program with other partner organizations like Southern Coalition for Social Justice and Democracy NC. The reason I named them is because there's been a hotline for years where folks can call a hotline if they've been intimidated. But now we've had to actually create an apparatus, a black legal network of black and brown attorneys who are volunteering their time to actually be on the ground so that if folks are intimidated at the polls, they could just say, hey, I identify you as an attorney. This is a microaggression that impeded me from being able to cast my ballot. They're telling me I have to show my voter ID or they're saying that they can't find my name on the voter rolls or it's misspelled or the other examples that we've heard. So it's now up to us as the advocates to now create our own form of protection in the wake of trying to convince our government to do the same for us. There's a
0: lot going on. People are taking action on both sides. And what it looks like is congesting the entire process. Lynn, are there any steps that are being taken by the Board of Elections, to your knowledge, to help protect voters, to help protect the Uh, election officials to try to break through some of this congestion.
4: I don't know of any specifically. Um, I'm sure there must be some plan that uh, I don't know about because there is, I mean, elections directors are talking about getting death threats and the like, so I can't imagine that there isn't some plan um, for protection uh, when they feel like they're in danger. But I do know that is that there is a national group that is trying to form an alliance between Local uh, county elections directors and law enforcement for protection. um, And some of the voter advocacy groups are uh, joining together to train people who will go to, to polls to be de-escalation forces, um, and they're trying to spread out um, statewide with some um, focus on places where they think there might be uh, more challenges to voters. So, um, you know, I think the pro- the, uh, the general election in, in November is going to be a real test to see how elections are going to be run. I mean, everybody's kind of gotten used to, well, I just show up and, you know, uh, fill in the bubbles and put my vote in the ta- in my ballot in the tabulator. Um, what is that going to look like in November? You know, there, is there going to be a lot of distru- disruption, a lot of disruption at particular places? And are there going to be more challenges to legitimate votes?
0: Absolutely. Um, And let me just get your feedback, you know, all three of you very quickly going down that road. So you've got possibly de-escalation groups showing up. You've got possibly police showing up. What do you think that's going to do to impact voters at the polls? How are they going to feel? What do you anticipate could happen?
2: Well, I mean, I think that it's just—I've uh, been through this both as a candidate, you know, running for offices and, and observer, working election days, and, uh, and and also as friends of, polit- you know candidates running. And it's getting increasingly divisive. I mean, you look at the polls, people getting scared, people getting frustrated, uh, people making accusations. It just makes the entire election day a very uncomfortable experience. So it could hinder, you know, turnout of vote, which you want this to be a comfortable experience. Uh, The second thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, the the, the only good news is the Board of Elections has uh, come up with some new rules where they're going to basically, you know, they could eject election observers if they see suspicious or intimidating activity Um, And so that's the good news. But the bad news, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, is in the North Carolina budget, they underfunded about $3 million or so of money that the Board of Elections needed for more staff, uh, for uh, automating equipment, machines, but even possibly security personnel, right? And so I think this is a time when our state needs to, particularly North Carolina needs to make investments in our democracy right here in our home state by expanding workers for polls and things like that. But Deb, I think it's gonna be a very, uncomfortable, turbulent um, election uh, this November.
3: And uh, L.A., what are your thoughts on it? Got about a minute. Um, I completely agree with Steve. What I would say is voter protection, poll worker protection, as voters, vote early. Um, and also, please uh, m- visit the websites of the aforementioned organizations that I included, including North Carolina Black Alliance, because there will be resources to help you navigate as you you know, if you decide absentee ballot, voting early, or if you actually want to go for group, whether it's a church group, whether it's a divine nine, they are actually safety in numbers and making sure that we are supporting you full 100%. So please look up our website, the website of other organizations, so that we make sure we're in support of our people and each other to actually cast our constitutional right uh, to
0: about. Well, absolutely. Share that information on the program. And uh, mail-in ballots sounds like a great option to me. L.A., Steve, uh, Lamicia Woodington, Steve Rao, Lynn Bonner, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us today. And we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thanks for watching. Public Television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting
2: PBSNC.